0: Educators, innovators, thinkers and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode
1: 170 of Impact Boom. My name is Tom Long and I'm passionate about bringing the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today, we're speaking with Oliver Bolton. Oliver Bolton is a design ethicist and philosopher whose primary interests are in artificial intelligence, where he examines existential risk, axiology, and semiotics. Starting out with a background in industrial design, Oliver completed his master's degree in studies at Parsons School of Design in New York. Upon returning to Australia, he spent two years working for the PwC Chair in Digital Economy at QUT. And Carly works as an Innovation Consultant at Glass, a Brisbane-based technology and advisory consultancy where he employs design strategy to assist companies and organisations with customer experience, automation and business model design. Oliver has worked for design firms and non-for-profits in New York and in Australia, has consulted for various companies such as Suncorp, Brown Foreman, Minor DKL and Queensland Government. On today's podcast, we'll discuss the design ethics involved with utilitarian perspective on capitalist production, whether or not social enterprise fits the model of effective altruism, and how to develop an innovation strategy for social enterprise. Thank you very much for joining us today, Oliver. Just to start things off, can you please share a bit about your background uh, in innovation, consultancy, and what led you into the study of design ethics? Sure. Um, yeah, well, I started out in
2: industrial design, um, focusing on audio technology. When I was doing my undergraduate work, I was sort of wanting to get into the music space, you know, wanting to design guitars, that sort of thing. And then that led me into the audio realm. And my undergraduate thesis looked some of the uh, inherent design flaws in recording studio technology, particularly relating to communication. And um, that inspired me to then spend some time working uh, at a France recording studio in Brisbane, Whereas where I first became interested in social enterprise. Um, it wasn't a non for profit exactly, but it was very dedicated to the sort of underground music scene in, in Brisbane, so it had a community feel to it. The sort of innovation and in design ethics space, I got into that when I started my master's degree uh, in design studies at Parsons over in New York. Uh, my studies there involved a really deep exploration of critical theory and postmodern philosophy. Um, And the program was about the application of those theories to the practice of designing, which was very unique. So during my time at Parsons, I got to study uh, with Clive Dillnott, who was my thesis supervisor. um, And his theories around the nature of artificiality have been very influential to my thinking. My graduate research, uh, my graduate thesis explored the concept of existential risk within design. Uh, with a particular focus on unintended consequences with my hypothesis being that if you give designers enough time and enough resources, it is possible for them to map out all of the possible outcomes of any given solution and uh, the case study that I used was uh, town planning and soundscapes. So basically I argued that if town planners uh, had been given enough time to consider all the possible outcomes of their design, then the sort of more modern practice of urban acoustics might have been picked up a bit earlier. More recently, I've become involved in uh, the field of machine ethics, which is the study of how to create machines embedded with ethical principles, which obviously uh, correlates with um, artificial intelligence. Um, I love AI as a as an area of ethical investigation. There's quite a quote I love from a philosopher, a philosopher uh, Dan Dennett, who said that AI makes philosophy honest. So especially having looked at a lot of postmodern philosophy, there's a, a fair bit of it that we can get off the rails, and a lot of it that's very interesting but when you're applying whether it's ethics or anything really you know cognitive science when you look at it through the AI lens it really sort of weeds out the sort of nonsense from the things that, that make it very clear what intelligence is and, uh, and, and very recently I've become interested in the study of axiology which is the study of how societies determine their values which of course plays a big role in the development of, of ethical or of friendly AI. So professionally, I've been working for the past few years in the consultancy space an innovation, trying to bring a strategic and sort of philosophical lens to design practice, which is an approach that's practically unheard of in, in Brisbane. Uh, but I've been lucky that there have been a few great places willing to take me on and experiment with it, uh, first at the PwC Chair in Digital Economy at QUT and, and now here at Glass. And I, I really do believe that design strategy, which is that philosophical approach to design, is really superior to traditional design thinking. Um, I think it delivers a really higher level of fidelity in outcomes than design thinking does. Because mm. it basically takes a lot of the things that you'll find in design thinking, and it's one step further in its depth. Design thinking, for the most part, is basically a, a combination of heuristics Simple methodologies taken from other, from various fields—psychology, sociology, and all that—design uh, strategy does is it, it implements that extra level of depth in, it, in the way it approaches those those methodologies.
1: Thank you so much. That's a really awesome answer. It's such an interesting background, and then going forward to design strategy and how it can advance innovation in such a way. That's really, really awesome to hear. You've already partially answered the next question for us, but I'll ask anyways. uh, Given your background in connecting design strategy and innovation to business, do you feel that design strategy, and specifically in this case, design ethics, could have an important role within the social enterprise space?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, design ethics are applicable to all forms of enterprise, not necessarily... Just uh, social enterprise but there are particular concerns that arise within that social enterprise space that are quite interesting so I think that um, some of the questions that I've become interested in recently involve the sort of utilitarian perspective on doing good that can sometimes devolve into a form of, of virtue ethics or the sort of God complex which can get a bit worrying which I guess is to say that sometimes people involved with running organizations or run enterprises that are dedicated to doing good can sometimes justify unethical activity that benefits the organization. somewhat analogous, I guess, are supposed to like a corrupt cop who I'm so convinced that what they're doing is right, the person they're after is has done the crime that they'll plant some evidence um, in order to obtain a conviction. And it takes a certain amount of self-assuredness and the quality of one's character to commit an ethical breach like that. And social entrepreneurs face similar traps, similar Areas where they need to be careful—they've got to keep their eye on the ball in terms of not just being output-focused,
1: but also being uh, ethical in their methodologies as well. I think that's a really important stance. That's really fantastic to hear. Just on our one of our main topics of today's discussion, uh, can you elaborate on the topic of design ethics involved with the utilitarian perspective on capitalist production?
2: Um, yeah. Well, first, I'd probably say that like you want to be careful with language, like utilitarian capitalism because most companies contribute net benefits to society in one form or another. So a term like social enterprise is probably a little more accurate when it comes to the sort of businesses we're talking about. And there are some elements of social enterprise uh, as a mode of production that are very interesting when it comes to design ethics. And I particularly like the way that it, it, it takes on provocation as a tool. Social enterprises through their nature tend to be Uh, unambiguous, they have a position on an issue and they say here's how we see a problem uh, and this is the way we think is the best way to solve this issue and by simply taking a position on on an issue that instigates discussion and discussion goes to a dialectic where new ideas emerge and can be developed that can contribute to better ethical practice.
1: Just coming off that answer there, Mm. what ethical considerations can social initiatives apply when they are looking to release products into the market?
2: All right. So, yeah, well, I get asked this sort of question a lot, um, obviously, being a design ethicist and, you know, not only by social entrepreneurs, but also by designers um, who just want to create more ethical outputs and I might have to disappoint you in that. I don't necessarily believe that it's the role of the ethicist to ludicate whether or not specific uh, ethical concerns should be considered by particular organisations, enterprises and so on. And the reason for that is because I think that most people think that the ethicist's role is simply to sort of be a goody two-shoes, to sort of be the person on the corner of the street saying, don't let her recycle. And people who are ethically engaged, they will listen to that normative advice. And, uh, you know, and then you get into questions of, okay, now looking for ethical advice, who should I listen to? Because there are a lot of amateur ethicists out there who think that their role is to sort of virtue signal, which is basically another way of saying, it's like, take the prevailing ethical trends of the time, which is another saying fashionable ethics, shall we say, and apply that to practice. And that'll be as good for as long as those ethics are fashionable. But one of the main reasons why businesses, organisations, that want to understand ethics more, they want to sort of uh, mitigate the risk of long-term poor decision-making. If you're a company and you want to say, look, we've got this new service, we've got this new product, and We want to implement ethics around how we deliver this to our customers uh, you don 't want to be ethically insured for the foreseeable six months or year you want to be you know you don 't want to end up on a sort of a journal of a John skewer ten years down the track you know you want to have a, a good understanding of that the way you 're implementing this is, is consistent logically consistent with the way that your larger practice operates and so that 's basically what I often say to uh, not only to, to friends and colleagues but also to clients is that. I mean, a lot of good ethical advice can be normative. most good ethical advice is normative. However, the, I like to say that the best tool you can give someone is an understanding of their own values, which is their own axiology. And um, it's sort of like that old adage: If you give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. If you teach a man a fish, uh, he'll never go hungry. And to, the best, to that extent, I suppose the best counsel I can offer is that uh, you know, whether you're doing social enterprise or not, you should always strive to be logically consistent in ethical decision-making. Uh, And that's not to say necessarily that if, you know, you should employ a deontological approach to ethics, not everything's black and white, I happen to personally be a utilitarian, um, but, you know, for example, if you are a utilitarian, then being logically consistent would be ignoring those gut reactions, ignoring, you know, working to make sure you're not implementing some sort of moral absolutism, uh, that you're always taking the time to consider what is the best possible
1: course of action. That's a very interesting answer that can definitely be extrapolated on. That. I'm really excited to hear the feedback from that, actually. I think they will create lots of positive discussion. So the next topic explores whether social enterprise fits the model of effective altruism. Before we discuss that further, would you mind explaining the basis of effective altruism?
2: Uh, yeah, sure. I'll, um, I'll probably start by hedging my definition because uh, I'm not necessarily a proponent of effective altruism. I'm a proponent of a form of effective altruism. But uh, I'll I'll say that my definition may or may not live up to the standards of someone who is more of an effective altruist than I am. But nonetheless, as far as I understand it, effective altruism is an ethical philosophy in which individuals or groups seek to to have the greatest impact that they can uh, with the resources that they have, uh, which I suppose on the surface sounds pretty good. It's a sort of reverse engineering of uh, philanthropy that has a couple of parts, but it's it's very heavily influenced by the work of the iconic Australian bioethicist uh, Peter Singer. He wrote uh, an essay back in the mid-70s called Famine, Affluence, and Morality, which helped provide the sort of theoretical underpinnings. In that essay it included the analogy of the drowning child. Uh, so I, I believe I have the context for it. Uh, there was a time when Bangladesh was facing a famine. And basically he argued that if, if you were a person walking down the street, Uh, in your neighbourhood or your suburb, and you saw a child drowning in a pond, you would feel morally obligated to go and help that child. And he was basically saying, just because the child, another child is drowning in a pond on the other side of the planet, that doesn't mean that we have any less of an obligation to contribute uh, and to help that person. So I suppose the two parts of effective altruism in its contemporary format is uh, the first is that Effective altruists are often uh, encouraged to pursue the most profitable career open to them uh, with the intention that they will then donate as much of that profit as possible to charity. There's two parts to the second sort of element of of, um, EA as it's otherwise known, which is that the charities go to organisations that can uh, show measurement in the the good they do. Um, Obviously, most people are nowadays aware, they didn't used to be, but nowadays it's, it's Quite common knowledge, you'll find that some charities, their operating costs, shall we say, are rather high. Sometimes it can be as much as fifty percent of what you'll donate will go uh, into the administration of a charity and, and won't actually get to the people in need. So, uh, charities that are sort of EA approved, and there is there are websites you can you can look up to see which which charities are officially approved by effective altruist organisations. They tend to be organizations that have very low overheads, so that the majority of the money that you donate is going to doing some good. And they also tend to be organizations that um, have really good abilities to, to measure the impact they're having, a very high focus on metrics, because it's sort of almost like an empirical approach to doing good. That's all good and well. There are criticisms people have about measurement as a concern in, in EA. A lot of those concerns are probably valid because there are some serious problems in the world that we face that need, uh, you know, more resources, more donations, more philanthropy uh, that don't get the, don't get as many donations simply because they're difficult to measure. The other, the second part of it that's that I have pretty more severe criticisms of, is the axiology, which is the value system that most EAs follow, which derives from the work of Peter Singer, and that's that. Uh, they say saving lives is more important than improving the quality of life. So I suppose the analogy there is to say that if, if you could give uh, $5 to one organization, well, there's an organization uh, you know, in Africa or in the South Pacific that uh, will build one malaria net for $5. And that malaria net will save a life. Um, but it might cost $100 or $1,000 for example, to train a seeing-eye dog uh, in a country like Australia or the United States. And so basically what EAs would argue is, look, for the price of one seeing-eye dog that will improve the quality of one blind person's life, you could save the entire lives of this many children who may be affected by malaria. My, I am a negative preference utilitarian, and basically what that means is that I see suffering as a significantly more important than the presence of pleasure and most utilitarians balance those two things so that if you had a you know say a, a vaccine you're getting a jab with for a meningococcal or smallpox or something the jab of a needle is one unit of bad one unit of pain but the prevention of something like meningococcal or smallpox is 100 units of good. Now, that all makes sense to a, uh, someone who was a balanced utilitarian. Even that makes sense to someone who's a negative utilitarian. But a negative utilitarian might take a pause on something like a routine blood test. Because if the routine blood test is you know, only 5 units of good or 10 units of good, well, we basically have a, a construct that's like an offset. Uh, so we're more concerned with the alleviation of suffering which only happens within existence. So, another way of saying that negative preference utilitarians tend to be more focused on improving the quality of life than just existing. Another way of saying that I suppose is that if all you are concerned with is expanding the number of people who are alive, you're just concerned with expanding the number of people who are alive who have the ability to suffer rather than decreasing the amount of suffering that take place in the world. It's a rather intricate ethical argument, but that's the way that I I would uh, put my lens on effective altruism.
1: I think that's such an interesting argument as well. Just for our next question, do you believe that social enterprise fits the mould of effective altruism in its dedication to do social good? I'd say that,
2: generally speaking,
1: social enterprise
2: doesn't fit the mould of effective altruism because social enterprise is, is more about alternative modes of capitalism than it is about... A sort of philosophy of contribution and to that extent i guess i could be arguing somewhat controversially that um, social entrepreneurs are somewhat selfish they are dedicating their lives to doing good rather than doing the most amount of good that they can do it's a subtle distinction but with a important difference another way of phrasing it i suppose to say that someone who has all the same impulses as a social entrepreneur and wanting to do good, they would be sacrificing the appearance of doing good. No one goes up to someone who's working at Deloitte or KBNG and says, well done, good on you, pat on the back, you're doing fantastic. You know, there's no awards for effective altruists yet. So, and I, you know, if I can be permitted a, a pop culture reference, it's sort of like in The Dark Knight, Batman gives up being the hero. Because giving up being a hero is how he can contribute most to, to Gotham. And so it's, it's a good probe, I would say, for the consciousness of a social entrepreneur to say to someone who's wanting to do this sort of work, look, if you wanted to do this sort of work, but everyone thought you were a, a self-centered sellout, would you still be doing it? Because if the answer is no, then you might want to reevaluate your purpose or your value for why you want to Follow this sort of work. Now, I guess having said that, effective voucherists also have uh, a flaw, which is that they need charities, they need non-profits, they need social entrepreneurs uh, in order to be able to achieve the good that they intend to do. After all, EAs need a place to donate to once they've made as much profit as they can. If they don't have the organizations that are actually out there doing the work, then the theory behind their principle is somewhat null and void. And I'd also say that I, I guess I'm, I've looped charities, non-profits and social enterprises in a sort of bucket there. And of course, the idea behind social enterprise is that it's not dependent upon donations and philanthropy. But I would sort of say that I think it's worth noting that sometimes in reality, the clientele of social enterprises engage their services with the intention of treating it like a charitable contribution, which is something that social entrepreneurs should be aware of. You know, it could just be a sort of, again, utilitarian way of making a decision. Look, it's business coming in, means we can do good. But then how does that make me different from a charity? Just something you've got to throw up and and weigh up. Because otherwise you're just letting these companies get away with a sort of illusionary form of virtue signaling in which they're trying to act
1: like they're donating to a charity, but they're not really
2: donating to a charity.
1: I really like how that comes back to that study of axiology of uh, understanding of values and moving from there, especially what your values are as a Mm. social enterprise and reflecting on those and even what your values are as a person, Mm. especially before you enter social enterprise. Because when you do bring up social enterprise, it is a big task, it is a lot. So these are definitely key questions that you need to ask yourself.
2: And I would, would, yeah, I mean, I would say, like, like another thing that's very key, again, I would say is negative preference utilitarian for social entrepreneurs is that the thing that makes social entrepreneurs have a sort of, shall we say, mirrored approach to the way that I'm thinking is that often I, when I talk to social entrepreneurs, they have a personal connection to the, the cause that they're working towards. And that's actually a good thing. I think that there's, I mean, and I'm probably, to some extent, sometimes a part of the crowd that will critique that sort of identity politics, for lack of a better term, but at the same time, Without that direct connection, um, we run the risk of falling into the sort of effective altruism whirlpool, where all of our charitable resources and output goes to only the most dire of circumstances, and we don't do anything that focuses on improving the quality of life, which I think is very important. So, you know, if I've got a cousin who's who's blind, I've got a nephew who's deaf. Um, those sorts of motivators for doing social good are positive and. They are more than just anecdotal. They serve a real
1: purpose in society. I really enjoyed that answer. Just on a different topic, can you give us an overview of how social initiatives can approach innovation within their company and how they can implement that to their social enterprise? Yeah. So I guess as a design strategist in innovation...
2: One of the things that we try to do is we, apart from coming up with ideas for clients, is to say, look, the best thing you can do is constantly coming up with ideas. And to that extent, the work that we do tends to be around, okay, how can this organization, how can this group be continuously coming up with ideas? It's a cultural thing, also not just a methodological thing that you put in an organization. Because it's time and it's effort, which means money, and not all of those ideas that you come up with are going to be fantastic and actually contribute. But the ones that do will help keep the enterprise feeling fresh and feeling like it's brand new. So I suppose the first step in with constantly coming up with ideas is having access to the right information. Uh, because if you're basing your ideation, your brainstorming, your innovation strategies around the wrong sorts of insights then you're gonna be coming up with the wrong sorts of ideas. So I now advocate for a sort of division in labor when it comes to customer insights. This is a job that design, in the 50s and 60s in America and England and Australia, it was very common for ad firms and design firms to employ psychologists to do customer insights. That just seemed like a natural fit. The sort of postmodern wave of the 1980s and 1990s that shifted to designers. Um, designers became uh, the owners of these dual roles where we had to sort of understand the customer and then directly relate to the product. And I think the thinking behind it was wanting to close the distance between the two. In the odd case that the psychologists couldn't explain themselves well enough to the designers who had to interpret what they were saying in order to make sure that that information got into the products they were designing. But there is actually a market shift back to that sort of thinking, but away from psychology and instead now towards sociology and anthropology. So basic overview, obviously everyone's familiar with psychologists who are people who are studying Individuals' behaviour. Sociologists study groups' behaviour. So when you hear terms like organisational psychology, they're sort of, to a certain extent, interchangeable with sociology. Anthropology is somewhat different, it's the study of culture. And obviously, nowadays, we hear the term culture in companies and organisations all the time. Um, so uh, anthropologists have a very specific method they use, which is called ethnography, which is basically a really in depth Uh, detailed observation of a culture. The insights, if if you're a designer, you've basically done a project where you've had the outputs of ethnography or you haven't. And when you have, it's, it's a world of difference. You get this giant, lovely, detailed report. Here's everything you could possibly want to know about your customer. And it's revolutionary, you know, because designers We sort of, you know, if you're lucky, you study a little bit of psychology, a little bit of sociology, but it's just not our practice. We are, after all, the makers. We are the creators. And it's an important division of labour that I think uh, I'm happy to see is expanding now in the marketplace. The second thing that uh, enterprises need is the courage and the intelligence to be provocative with that information. Because when you take information and, uh, or data or insights, however you'd like to frame it, you put a spin on it that no one, no one else has heard of before, intentionally, something that sounds ridiculous. It generates discussion that will often at times produce the idea, the outcome that you've been looking for. Yeah, so it's, and as I said before, that's, that's something that social enterprises tend to do very well, you know. Whether it's just looking for a way to differentiate themselves in the market, or because you know, someone in the groups had a, just had a fantastic idea. They tend to be very provocative in the way in which they either think about the problem or they deliver their solution to
1: their, their customers. Just going off that into our next question. Uh, Oliver, can you give us a few examples of companies or social initiatives that are really successfully using innovation-based strategies to maximize their
0: impact?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah. There are a few social enterprises that I follow because I think that the work they do is is really interesting, and I'll probably hedge myself again by saying you know these organizations may not fit everyone's definition of a social enterprise, but uh, nonetheless they're they're very innovative groups. So, firstly, I was I was lucky enough to be in New York for one of the one of several launch parties for the UN's He for She campaign, which is about uh, basically engaging men in the campaign for gender equality. The approach that that campaign has taken on the issue of gender equality is just amazing. It's found a way to both engage men in women's issues, um, but without making them feel like monsters for having previously been ignorant. And that's the sort of thing that is uh, sorely missing in in today's heavily polarised environment. So the work they do is, is really good. I also like the work of the Circular Experiment, um, which I think is now called Corio. Um, one of the professors I studied with in the US um, focused on the decoupling of use and ownership, which is a really fanciful way of, of what we now think of as the circular economy um, and uh, the sharing economy, I guess, which is another way to think about it. And just, you know, these organisations that are working to reevaluate the way in which we as a society think about how, and uh, I guess more importantly, what we can afford uh, to share. And the last one I'll I'll give a shout out to, uh, because it's really cute, is called Words with Heart. It's a social enterprise that sells recycled stationery uh, and gives uh, proceeds to help fund education programs for women. When you go to their website, you look at the stuff they do, they have a very evolved understanding of design and branding. Can never be undervalued in something like a social enterprise, and there's just something wonderful about the sort of ontological or semiotic uh, relationship between stationery and education that, that I just find very appealing. So
1: that's fantastic. Thanks so much for those examples. Uh, to finish off, could you please share three great design or social innovation books that you would recommend to our listeners? <laughs> three? Oh my God. Okay. Yeah.
2: Sure. Uh, Well, I guess, seeing as how we spoke a great deal about effective altruism, I'll start by recommending uh, William McCaskill's book. Uh, He's a social philosopher, sorry, Scottish philosopher, I should say. Uh, His book's called Doing Good Better. It really gets into the sort of nitty-gritty details behind the EA philosophy, but it's really poignantly written, and it sort of makes you feel excited about doing better and not so much guilty about not doing enough, which is really good when you read it, ethics books, because um, there's, there's a fair few that'll, that'll do that. <laughs> uh, the second book I'm gonna list up uh, is, gonna, is sort of a challenge to all the designers out there. Going back to what I was saying about the differences between design thinking and design strategy and the heuristics of design, thinking uses that design strategy takes a level deeper. Uh, just the context around this book. The book's called The Body in Pain by Elaine Scarry. Uh, it's a pretty uh, relatively old book, 1985. Design thinkers, or designers shall we say, will be very familiar with the use of the term pain points. We talk every designer left and right centre will always talk about. We're gonna solve this customer's pain points. And it's normally just like the frustrations that like the customer has. Like they'll do a sort of a observation, you know, of a, of a situation with a the customer and be like, oh, that was where it was frustrating. That's the pain point, we'll solve that. But that's as deep as the thinking in that area goes. And this book is arguably where the concept of pain points originates from. And it's, a, it's really a philosophical deconstruction of the way in which pain affects the human body. And uh, the last chapter is particularly important because it's about the way in which we as designers... Make objects that are about the alleviation of pain, and that we therefore have an ethical responsibility to be the sort of people who make the determinations about what should and should not be the forms of pain we in society need to experience in order to survive. That US professor I was talking about before, Cameron Topic wise. Um, he's actually in Australia, he's now back here at the University of Technology in Sydney. He gave a fantastic lecture where he referenced this, and he was talking about how, when we think about pain points and pain, in design nowadays, the most common way you think about it is, like, you know, you get those mugs sometimes, and they have, like, a ring at the bottom. You put it upside down in the dishwasher, and it comes out. There's a little bit of water sting at the top, so when you flip it upside down and you put it back in the cupboard, oh, I got splashed by that little bit of water. And a design thinker would look at that and be like, oh that's a pain point that's a frustration, i am going to go solve that because designers will, will solve everything for you will make everyone live in castles and clouds in the sky but as a design ethicist I think about that dynamic differently using some of the learnings that are, that are in that book where you've got to treat the designing of products for customers more like a parent with a child uh, a child will cry for help all the time but you, as, you know, it's the parent's responsibility in this analogy to be the, you know, to be the one who's saying, "Look, at this moment, this thing that's hurting you, you have got to experience that because it's going to make you less feeble, less weak." <laughs> so yeah, there's there's always money to be made. Having said that, in designing for every little issue that's seen, but designers should be aware that there's much more good that can be done in contributing to society with the work you do by being more conscious of those sorts of those sorts of ideas so seeing as how I gave you that book, I'm going to follow up with an even more challenging book <laughs> called The Society of the Spectacle uh, which is real critical theory written by a situationist called Guy Debord this book was very prominent in the occurrences of the uh, Paris riots, 1969, student one of the many student revolutions that happened that happen in France, it essentially outlines the way in which people have devolved from a focus on being, uh, experiencing, being as in experiencing living life, uh, into having, which was the second element, which is of materialism, consumerism. And the third one is appearing and appearing given the book was written in 1967 its sort of prescience is can't be outstated in the way that it it outlined the sort of social media instagram photo narcissistic generation that we now live in where everything is about appearing as if i am living but not actually living um and uh, i think as a designer nothing could be more important than understanding the ways which the work that we do contributes to that phenomenon um Because we should always be striving to do work that makes people aware that they are living and not just merely helps them
1: pretend that they are living. Oliver, that's all of our questions. Thank you so much for your generous insights. Thanks, Thomas. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org.